Ah, sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Well, greetings, Dan, from new studios in Riverside, California, Studio Cordero, the name of my producer. And we're very grateful to be here today with our guest, uh, attorney Kim Colby, director of the Center for Law and Religious Freedom and the Christian Legal Society. Kim, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Well, it's great to be with you, and it's exciting to be your first guest in this new studio. <laughs> well, and uh, a frequent guest, I might add, for and today for a topic that is is really quite significant. Um, our listeners, of course, know that the nation has been mourning the loss of Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia. What our listeners probably know far uh, less well is his very checkered legacy when it comes to religious freedom. Of course, Scalia is celebrated as a staunch conservative and, and defender of, of many conservative values. Uh, but focus on freedom's ring, of course, is on religious freedom. So when you think, Kim, I don't know where you want to start, but um, when you think of Scalia's legacy on religious freedom, uh, what are the highlights? Well, I think it, it, it's funny. It is it is a checkered history. Um, I think of him as a very strong defender of religious freedom, but his um, decision in Employment Division versus Smith was, of course, a real blow to religious freedom. So we have this odd fact that Scalia wrote an opinion that did a great deal of damage to religious freedom, and I assume we'll talk a little bit of what that damage is. But other than that decision, he was a very staunch, uh, strong proponent of religious freedom. And to be fair to Scalia, who it, it's just hard to overstate what his loss means to uh, the court and to so many of the issues that we care about, but to be fair to him, he would say that Smith actually was not opposed to religious freedom. It just um, uh, went a different direction than many of us wanted. But I think we'll talk about that a little more anyway. Well, let's do because, you know, Smith, many have heard of the peyote case, which is the Smith case. It It set the whole concept of protecting free exercise of religion on a new course. And... We're seeing this year, last year, uh, a liberal conservative divide over state legislative efforts to protect religious freedom by statutes, religious freedom restoration acts. These are the outgrowth of what Smith, what the Smith case essentially did to free exercise of religion. Give us in a nutshell what that holding was, what that impact was on free exercise of religion. So before Smith, for about 30 years, uh, under the Constitution, if, if a person said, this law applies to everybody, a law saying maybe uh, prohibiting wine, say we were back in prohibition, it applies to everyone. And, and 
I wouldn't have a problem complying with the law, but my faith is somehow violated by the law if I comply with it. And so, therefore, I need an exemption from complying with the law. I'm not challenging the law's constitutionality as a whole, just as it applies to me because of my religious beliefs. You know, we need wine for our mass, say. And... um and for 30 years or more, uh, there's a long tradition, of course, of religious exemptions being given, uh, going back to the Continental Army and Quakers. Um, but uh, there was a, a strong period in the 60s, 70s, 80s where what's called the compelling interest test basically said that if a generally applicable law burdened a religious uh, individual's exercise of their religious beliefs, the government had to show a compelling interest for applying that law to that individual in that circumstance. And what happened with the Smith decision is Justice Scalia said that's the wrong test for understanding constitutional free exercise of religion. And instead, and then you and I are painting with very broad brushstrokes here, but generally, if a law is neutral, it's not aimed at religious people, and it's generally applicable to everyone, even if it burdens a religious exercise, the law still applies to that person. We're not giving exemptions. So using your example, uh, during Prohibition, the government was an able, was, could legally say to the Catholic Church, okay, we're going to give you an exemption. You can serve fermented wine for communion service because that's part of your religious tradition. But if the government said, eh, we're not going to make an exemption for you, then it would have been illegal for the Catholic Church or any other church to serve fermented wine. And they would not have, under the Smith approach, uh, they would not have any legal leg to stand on. They couldn't complain exactly. about the lack of an exemption. Exactly. Um, I'll give you one more example that is a current one here in California where there's a bill in the legislature that is saying to private and religious schools, if you want uh, students at your schools to receive state grants for education called Cal Grants, you have to comply with all the discrimination laws. And schools that are Christian or of another faith that have certain values when it comes to marriage or sexuality, they are at risk of losing access or their students losing access to these Cal grants. And under the Smith ruling, the fact that they have these sincerely held religious values isn't going to get them their day in court. Right. And, and so, you know, that's the federal level, right? The federal constitution's protection. So, um, before Smith, so everyone's protection, state, local laws, federal laws, all had to comply with the Constitution's understanding of free exercise before Smith. And Scalia's opinion uh, means that that protection no longer exists at federal, state, and local levels as a constitutional matter. Now, you and I both know there's some things that he left standing in the free exercise realm, and we don't need to go into those right now. So it didn't completely obliterate the free exercise clause, but it seriously weakened it. And the reason, and this is important to know, is that Scalia seemed to be, he was a judicial restraint person, and he did not like judges 
creating exemptions to generally applicable laws. And so in the Smith decision, he says, I don't like the judges deciding when it's something's a compelling interest, and I don't like them deciding, you know, whether the religious claimant should win or the government should win. But I'm perfectly okay with the legislature creating exemptions. So if the legislature wants to say the Catholic Church is exempt from the prohibition law, it's perfectly okay to do that. Um, and so the important thing that came out of Smith after this dust all cleared was the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, in which Congress did what Scalia basically had invited it to do, which was to create a a massive religious exemption uh, to all laws for religious claimants if they could show their religious beliefs were substantially burdened then the government had to show it had a compelling interest that it couldn't achieve by a less restrictive means. It's a very strong law. There's a case tomorrow that's going to be heard about what it actually means in Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, so, so on one hand, the Smith decision was a disaster, but it led to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which has been a very strong uh, protection for religious liberty in the last 20 years or so. So, you know, Justice Scalia might say, actually, my decision prompted Congress to do something that it wouldn't have done otherwise. So my takeaway when I looked at the cases was that while Scalia has often been criticized for eroding the constitutional protection for free exercise, uh, his legacy in terms of how he has interpreted various statutory protections has been very, very strong. Um, he's been very strong on statutory protections under both the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the religious uh, the land use bill passed in 2000. Um, he was on the right side of a decision, Hosanna Tabor, respecting uh, churches' freedoms when it comes to employment. Right. Uh, so I think you're, you know, you're right that, that, uh, in some ways Scalia was very protective of religious freedom, but in a way that gave, uh, the legislative body a lot more leeway either to protect religious freedom or not to protect religious freedom. Right. I mean, was it last term or two terms ago that he actually authored the decision, I think, in the Abercrombie and Fitch case? That was just last where- term. A Title Seven case, term? yeah, right. June. So you know, there, a Muslim teenager uh, went to an interview wearing a hijab. Uh, she became, she learned through kind of back channels that she had not been hired because she was wearing a hijab, and she sued for religious discrimination under Title Seven. And you know, I think a lot of people thought that Scalia would not be particularly uh, sympathetic to her. Uh, you know, he had an he had a reputation for siding with employers, and um, she was a minority faith. But he actually wrote the decision saying, "You read the statute, and it doesn't say that she has to say I need a religious accommodation. It says the employer has to give one, right?" Um, so that was one place where his particular uh, insistence on being very close to the text of a statute or the Constitution. Uh, benefited religious liberty for a minority person. 
And I, and I have to say, I've said it so many times on this show, the number one religious freedom issue in America uh, is the pressure put on people of faith to compromise their religion as a condition of keeping or uh, obtaining a job. Right. And having to choose between, you know, putting bread on the table, feeding their families, putting a roof over their heads, and, uh, you know, faithfulness to their uh, to their religious obligations. And so... Actually, Abercrombie uh, is a game changer. The you know this is our bread and butter here at the Church State Council, where we do a lot mm-hmm. of representation of folks who have suffered employment discrimination because of their faith. Uh, and the Abercrombie decision that Scalia wrote, we have cited countless times since you know just last year. Right. So it's a very interesting mixed um, result as we look to the future. And the possibility, either uh, with an Obama appointee or if a Democrat is elected uh, and, and a Democratic uh, appointee replacing Scalia, uh, do you think that that will be better or worse for religious freedom? Well... I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's your read? You know, CLS is a nonpartisan organization. We will work with Republicans or Democrats. But there is a concern that right now uh, the Democratic Party is not as committed to religious liberty as it once was. So I think we're very concerned about any appointment um, that just may not be as pro-religious liberty as we need at this time on the court. I agree with you. We're also nonpartisan. But the big, you know, uh, the big conflict is whether equality rights, LGBT rights, are going to consistently trump religious freedom. And the left certainly leans that way. Um, The right, if there's any hope for some kind of balance, I think it comes because of uh, some conservative voices saying, hey, wait a minute, let's respect both sets of rights. Exactly. Well, uh, as always, a pleasure to have Kim Colby on Freedom's Ring. Kim is the director of the Center for Law and Religious Freedom, the Christian Legal Society. Thanks for being with us today, Kim. It's been a pleasure. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.